So this morning I've got good news and bad news. I'm going to start with the bad news because I always like to know the worst first. I'm like, tell me how bad it is and then tell me the good news. I also do that when I eat. I save the things that I, I like the best on the side of my plate and I eat the things that I don't like first, like kale. I don't know who likes kale. Some of you are kale people. It's like more power to you. I, I think it's like one of the worst things God ever created. But nevertheless, <laughs> I, I eat that first. And I'll, I'll eat whatever I don't like. And what I, what I do like, I push to the side of my plate to save for last. And I remember when I first married Brian, I, um, I used to always put the steak to the side because I like steak. I'm sorry. For those who like kale, you probably have a hard time with us people who love beef. But anyway, I would push it to the side of my plate and just wait. And so inevitably, as a little girl, my dad would take that steak thinking I didn't want it and he would eat it. But I would look over and go, I love my dad so much. It's, it's worth it to make my daddy happy. And there's like no way I was going to go, that's my steak. It was like, oh, I was able to bless him. You know, the guy who blessed me so much. So then I marry Brian and we're out to dinner and I pushed my steak aside to the, uh, the side of the plate. And all of a sudden Brian reaches over and my dad reaches over and their forks literally clink and cross. <laughs> and this is the thing that got me. They looked at each other and said, sorry, each other. What about me? It's my steak. And my dad's like, oh, I guess things have changed. And I was like, oh, sorry. I mean, it was hilarious. Okay, so bad news first. Bad news. Even as a believer, here it goes, you can be wrong. Even as a believer, you can get things wrong. Even as a believer, God will let you get things wrong. You're like, why didn't you stop me? I think God says, I tried, but you really wanted this one. God will even let us make wrong decisions and wrong moves. Unfortunately, being a believer is no exemption from stupidity. I hate doing stupid things. I really, really do. I, I was doing my hand washing the other day, and you know, I was doing pretty good, had all the light things in it. And I had like five things in it, which you should only do one thing at a time. That's what my mother taught me, you know, but I had a pile and I wanted to get it all over with. So at the last moment, I'm like, look, none of the colors are draining. I threw in a black scarf. I spotted, I spotted my favorite sweaters. And then I'm trying really hard to get the spots out, but they're like, no, you dyed us, you live with it. And I just sat there going, this is my own story stupid fault. I did this to myself and to my sweaters because I wanted to save time because I didn't want to wash each thing separately. And there was no one to blame but myself. And I knew better. Even at the time, I knew better, but I threw it in. I'm looking like, how did they get these black spots? And then I'm looking at that black scarf going, it was, it was my own fault though. It's not the black scarf's fault. It just said, you threw me in, you knew better. But I hate making mistakes, absolutely hate mistakes. But here's the good news. God uses our mistakes to teach us incredibly important, essential lessons. 
One of those lessons is the why. You know, it's, it's when we make those mistakes, we get those aha moments like, oh, now I understand why God said to do it this way. One hand-washing thing at a time without the black scarf. I understand this. I remember my mom used to always say, do not throw wet towels on the dirty clothes. She'd always say, don't throw anything damp in the hammer, hamper. Hang it up, let it. Well, when I was in college, I realized why. Because I threw that wet towel on my dirty clothes. And you know what? My dirty clothes had these incredibly black furry spots on them from the wet towel. And then it was like, oh, I understand. It was an aha moment. That's why mom said, do not put damp towels in the hamper or on dirty clothes because she didn't like those black furry spots on my clothes. So we understand the why of God's directions when we do it wrong. Had I not left that damp towel on my clothes for three weeks in college, I would never know why mom had given that prohibition. He also uses our mistakes to bring us to the end of our pride, right? The end of our insistence on our own way. You know, God will often let us get our own way so that we don't like our own way. So we realize how faulted our own way is. God will let us make mistakes to bring us to the end of our own independence. We tend to be so independent. I can do it myself. I have a three-year-old grandson. That's what he always, he puffs out his little chest and says, I can do it myself about everything. And he can't, just for the record, at three, he cannot do it, like drive the car. He's like trying to push me over so he can drive my car. I can do it myself. No, not gonna, anyway, that's a given. He uses our mistakes and our folly to teach us amazing lessons about his faithfulness, that it doesn't matter if we blow it, he's still faithful. Paul said to Timothy, even when we're faithless, He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He does it to showcase the greatness of his grace towards us. He uses our mistakes and folly to cause us to distrust ourselves. I don't think there's a better lesson than to learn not to trust yourself. I think that's one of the greatest lessons. I mean, I will seriously say, ah, somebody else help me here. I don't trust myself, especially around chocolate. I don't trust myself. Take it away from me. I don't trust myself. In fact, I was hearing a story about um, one of my friends, Kathleen, who on an Israel trip, she bought all, all these Mars bars. And she had her roommate, Laura, put them in the safe and not give her the combination in the hotel room. Now, that's a woman I can relate to, a woman who does not trust herself. And we need to learn to distrust ourselves and to trust God alone. He uses um, these things to make us look to him and acknowledge him in all our ways. Unfortunately, we often feel condemned by our folly. We spend too much time ruining our bad decisions, thinking, how could I do this? How could I do this? You know, well, you did it because you're you, all right? And you're capable And not only capable, it's more probable that you'll make a bad decision than a good decision. I consider my good decisions God's intervention. My bad decisions, they're all mine. There's where I am, but for the grace of God. 
But God is not disqualifying us. Often when we make a bad decision, we're like, well, that's it. I'm disqualified. No, you're not disqualified. You've just learned a great lesson. That's what's happening. Take it as a lesson. We spend too much time thinking about what we did wrong. Sometimes I feel like I'm just like, oh, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I'm in there and I'm just in the corner feeling sorry for myself. Just, I can't believe that Cheryl Broderson of all people could get it wrong. I feel like the Lord's like, are you done yet? Are you over this? He wants to move on. Of course we can get it wrong. In Mark chapter 8, 13 through 21, the disciples are on the boat with Jesus and he's telling them this lesson about the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're turning to each other going, this is a secret message from Jesus and it's all about the fact that we've forgotten bread. And Jesus says, it's not about the bread you've forgotten. In other words, we self-focus too often and think it's about us and what we've done wrong and what we're doing right. It's not. It's about God's sufficiency. It's about Jesus able to feed multitudes. So we cannot afford to make it about ourselves. But we do need to learn from our mistakes. Again, that we cannot trust ourselves. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Yeah, if you want to say it, fine. I figured we know it by heart by now. Appearances are deceiving, right? Don't trust what you see with your eyes. You cannot go on sight alone. Look to God and know his sufficient grace. Asa, as we studied week before last, he was a king who could not learn from his mistakes. When he was confronted with what he did wrong, instead of saying, I'm wrong, wow, that was a mistake I need to learn from when he hired the Assyrians, when he didn't seek God's guidance. Instead of receiving the chastening, the reprimand, he became angry. He put the prophet in prison who spoke to him. He became oppressive and he grew even more independent from God and refused to seek God's ways. He didn't like being told he was wrong. We need to learn from this. Again, it's our right to be told you're wrong. We don't like it, but sometimes it's the very best thing that could happen to us. Now, that's Asa, but his son Jehoshaphat, what I love most about him is that he wasn't a perfect monarch. He made some very harmful mistakes. One, he aligned himself with an evil king, King Ahab. Secondly, he made an alliance with Ahab through the marriage of his son Jehoram with Ahab's daughter Athaliah. He committed Judah to a battle under Ahab's influence. He went against the advice of a prophet. He didn't yield to the check in his spirit. He heeded Ahab's advice in battle and went into the battle in his royal chariot with his kingly robes. You'll find out in a minute why that wasn't such a good idea. He went into a second alliance with the son of Ahab. He joined a business enterprise with another of Ahab's sons. He was rebuked by two prophets, both Jehu and Eliezer. And he received even a mild rebuke from Elisha for being with evil Ahaziah and the king of Edom. But though Jehoshaphat was not perfect and made mistakes, you know what? He was still a good king. 
You see, good godly people can make mistakes and do stupid, stupid things. But this is what we learn. The Lord was with him, 2 Chronicles 17.3. He might have made bad mistakes, but God was still with him. He didn't say, you know, that was so stupid. I'm going to find somebody else to hang out with. We find out that he emulated the godly ways of his ancestor, David. He walked, again, verse 3 of chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles. He walked in God's commands and not in the idolatrous ways of Israel. Verse 4 of chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles. We're told in verse 6, chapter 17, that he took delight in the ways of the Lord. He removed the high places and wooden images. Then he sent Levites throughout Judah with the book of the law and taught the people. Verse 9 of chapter 17, 2 Chronicles. He did these great, great things. He appointed and gave godly instruction to judges. And yet, even with all of those good attributes, he could do some really stupid, wrong things. Now, either you're just like, oh, Jehoshaphat, how could you? Or you're like, hallelujah, there's grace in the name of Jesus, and I'm going to be okay. For me personally, I love people like Jehoshaphat and Peter. I love knowing that God is all right with my mistakes, that my mistakes are a bigger deal to me than they are to God. He's able to work with these things. Now, we're also told that God blessed Jehoshaphat. The fear of the Lord was on the other kingdoms so that they didn't attack Judah in verse 10 of chapter 17. He was increasingly powerful. He built fortresses and storage cities. He had an army of over a million mighty men of valor. And he was respected by the prophet Elisha. Elisha said, look, I don't want anything to do with these other men. But because Jehoshaphat is here and I know God, God cares about Jehoshaphat. God's going to work. So he's, he's blessed by God. God loves him. And yet, his folly was costly. The, the mistakes he made were not like, well, that only cost you two cents. They were costly. A friend of mine, was, um, she forgot to get her parking validated in England, and it ended up costing her 40 pounds, which is the equivalent of about $70. And so she won't go to that market again because she's so mad at that market for you know, what they did and that they wouldn't have any grace. But I was thinking about... You know, some of our mistakes are costly. Sometimes they cost us a lot of money. And sometimes we judge our own condemnation or rightness with God by how expensive the lesson was. Well, God must have thought that was an important lesson if it costs so much. And I don't know about you, but the more costly a lesson is, the more I don't want to make that mistake again. Amen? Amen. Thank you. So the marriage of his son caused many hard and evil years for Judah after Jehoshaphat's death. Jehoram, his son, who married Athaliah, he gave him the office of king because he was the oldest. Not because he sought the Lord for which son should be the king, but he went with kind of decorum of that day and gave it to the oldest. And we're told that Jehoram murdered all his brothers. No doubt under the influence of his evil wife, Athaliah, We're also told that Jehoram died an early death, a gruesome death. 
We're also learned that his grandson, uh, I'm sorry, that his, Jehoshaphat's grandson, Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, he was murdered in Israel, the kingdom of Israel, when he went to visit his brother-in-law. We also learn that Athaliah, Jehoshaphat's daughter-in-law, by this alliance that he made, that when her son died, she went around and murdered all of her grandchildren, except for one that she missed. But that's another story, Joash. And she reigned over Judah for six years, bringing Baal worship into the kingdom. So it was a costly mistake, this alliance through marriage. His military alliance was very costly. He didn't listen to the warning of the prophet Micaiah, who said, you're going to lose this battle for Ramoth Gilead. We find out in 2 Chronicles 18.31 that Jehoshaphat almost died in this battle. In fact, the enemy had said, the Assyrians had said, look, we just want to go after the king. Forget all the other soldiers. Go after the king. Ahab had said to Jehoshaphat, oh, you know what? You wear the royal robes. You look like king. You be the king of this battle. I'll, I'll just dress like a soldier and bringing all the attention to Jehoshaphat. Yet when Jehoshaphat is in the middle of this battle, which is very costly, and he almost loses his life, because the attention of the Assyrians is focused on the king. But he cries out to God in the midst of the battle. And God diverts the enemy from him and he's able to escape. But it's a costly battle. It greatly reduced the army of Judah. Remember, they once were a million strong. They had the respect of the other nations. And they lost the battle. The military alliance with Ahab's son against Moab jeopardized the lives of the men of Judah for the financial gain of Israel. They almost lost their troops and animals to thirst, and they were saved only by God's intervention. And then when they won the battle, they were disgraced by the king of Moab. And yet Jehoshaphat learned essential lessons Some of your most essential and important lessons are learned through your failure and folly. I know if I look back in my life, I can see that my greatest lessons, the greatest things I learned were not from my victory, like, oh, I'll try that again, that one worked, but through my failure, through the times I got it wrong. Let me tell you this, I never, ever, throw a wet towel on my dirty clothes ever under any circumstances. I now understand what the railings in the bathroom are all about. Therefore, hanging your damp towels. We need to learn. This is where the essential lessons are. So I want to talk about, and this is going to be quick, 11 lessons, no kidding, that Jehoshaphat learned. So lesson number one, he learned to seek God. Again, Proverbs um, 3, verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Remember in the court of Ahab, he had asked for a prophet. And when the prophet Micaiah said, you're going to lose this battle, God is not with you. He, although he had sought the Lord, he didn't listen to the Lord, but he learned to seek the Lord. I love how Jehoshaphat's always going, is there a prophet? 
Is there a prophet? We need to have a prophet. So he learned to seek a prophet, one. But two, he learned to listen to God's prophets. We realize when he meets with Elisha, and Elisha says, dig ditches in this valley. In 2 Kings chapter 3, you know what? He starts digging ditches. What does it show you? That he learned, listen to the word of the prophets. In chapter 20, verse 20 of Second Chronicles, he says to the people, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. He realized that it's through listening to the prophets that there would be prosperity. So he learned to not only ask and seek God, but to listen to God's prophets. Three, he learned the importance of God's word, that it is absolute, that there's no wiggle room, that it does not fail. What Micaiah said, that they would lose the battle, they lost the battle. It happened just as Micaiah said. When Eli Shah said, dig ditches, you won't see wind, you won't see rain, but this valley will be filled with water. They woke up the next morning and what? The valley was filled with water. Elisha said they would have a victory over Moab. It was an easy thing to the Lord. And what happened? They had a victory over Moab. So Jehoshaphat learned that God's word does not fail. It is absolute. As Elizabeth Elliot said, God does not give advice. He gives commands and instructions. It's not suggestions, helpful suggestions. When God speaks, he is telling us what needs to be done. Fourthly, he learned to obey God's word. Again, going back to 2 Kings chapter 3, that God's word needs to be acted on. If they hadn't dug ditches, there would have been no place for the water to go. Somebody brought up in leaders meeting today. What if they had only dug one ditch or two ditches or three ditches? They were rewarded according to the number of ditches they dug. And they dug the number of ditches according to how much they believed and obeyed the word of God. And because they obeyed the word of God and they dug a multitude of ditches, the valley was filled with water. It's not just about the end objective. But it's about the how. We need to do it God's way. And that's what happens when we obey God's word. You know, so many people get the end objective. I've actually had a person tell me, oh, I lie for God. No, you don't. And in Proverbs chapter 6, it's one of the things that's absolutely abominable, detestable, that he hates is lying. God does not achieve his way through lying. In fact, it says that all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. God wants things done his way. And God has a specific way that he wants things done. And this is one of the things that Jehoshaphat learned, that God has a specific way. We are to seek not only the will of the Lord, but the way of the Lord. Lord, how do you want your will done? He learned about God's mercy because again, when he cried out to God, Even though he was in the wrong alliance, the wrong battle, the wrong clothes, with the wrong enemy, God heard his cry and saved him. That's mercy. You know, so many times when we're praying, we're like, Lord, you probably aren't going to save me because I got myself into this. 
probably not going to help me get these black spots out of my two favorite sweaters because I'm the one who threw the black scarf in. But God is a saving God. God hears us. God has mercy on us. He forgives us and he works. Next, he learned to recognize the word of the Lord. It is so essential that we recognize that's God. That's God's word. You know, there were all those other prophets in Ahab's court, and he wasn't sure of their word. And when Micaiah spoke, he's like, oh, that is another word. But he needed to learn to recognize that's God. From every other word, that's God. It's interesting because um, I remember this person came up to me and they said, um, I'd like you to do a retreat for us. And I said, okay, great. What's it on? And they said, surrender. And you know what it was like? It was like, it was like all of a sudden his voice changed. It was the voice of God thundering in the room. Surrender. I had asked the Lord for a word for a specific situation I was going through. And when he said that word, it was like, you know, my mouth, he's like, are you all right with that? I'm like, I'm so all right with that. I, I was, I'm going through an, another huge, huge trial in Spain. And I came to the, the office, and I don't know if you have this, but Brian's gone in most of my huge trials. And it's usually like, I think God takes Brian out of the way, like, no, it's going to be about you and me, not about you and me and him, even though you love him. And I put my word in his mouth, you need to rely on me. So Brian's out of the picture. So I'm going through this thing, and I, I went through this traumatic thing, and then um, it was just very confusing. Isn't it true that Satan is the author of confusion? Whenever I'm confused, I know, okay, the devil is in this, and I need to hear from God specifically. And that's what I was saying to the Lord. I'm confused. I need to hear from you specifically about this. I remember I came to church. John Chubeck is in the office. And John Chubeck says, Cheryl, how are you doing? I don't know why he asked me that. He probably regretted it later. But he asked me how I was doing, and I said, you know, John, I'm, I'm really going through something. And I just lightly outlined it. And he said to me, Cheryl, you know what I would do? If you want, I think. And I'm like, no. And he goes, oh, I shouldn't tell you something. I'm like, no, no, tell me. I want to hear what you feel the Lord is laying on your heart. And he said this word, disengage. And it was so interesting because I had told somebody earlier, I don't want to engage the enemy. And then he says to me, disengage, remove yourself from this, stand back. And I knew, I recognized this is the word of God. This is God speaking to me right now. And I have so much respect for John Chubeck, even more than I had before, which was a lot. But that was God speaking to me. We need to learn to recognize the word of God. And it will come sometimes through not recognizing it. And you, you realize, wait, that was God warning me. Micaiah was God warning me. I want to recognize the word of God so that by the time he was hearing Elisha say, dig ditches, he knew this is the word of God. He learned that God disciplines those he loves. We're told in Hebrews 12, five through six, my son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Not only does God chasten those he loves. In fact, when you're chastened, when you're caught, when you realize your mistake, you know what? You're loved. 
That means you're loved. People who are not chastened are not loved. But God loves you enough to not let you get away with that. That's really good news. It's kind of backward good news, but it is good news. But not only that, God uses chastening to train us, to get us ready for the big battles. Hebrews 12, 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. No, duh. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, we learn essential lessons when we are chastened, lessons that we need. We learn, or Jehoshaphat learned, that God is a covenant-keeping God. Their song in battle was praise the Lord for his faithful love or his mercy endures forever. That word mercy or faithful love is the Hebrew word kesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, pronounced kesed. And it means the covenant. It means that God is married and he is covenanted with you. You're in a marriage. I am so glad that I'm covenanted with Brian Broderson because I'm not always nice. And I'm not always the easiest person to be married to because I'm a woman, just so I'm not alone in this. I have, I have grumpy days. I have days when I don't want to make dinner. I remember this one time, we, I was just grumpy and he wanted dinner, so I made him dinner. And so he's eating his vegetables and he realizes they taste a little strange. And he, he goes over and he looks at the pot and he takes the steamer out. And I have steamed his vegetables with an SOS pad. He's like, Cheryl, do you love me? And I'm like, of course I love you. He's like, did, did you want to poison me? I'm like, no. H- how upset are you with me? I said, I'm not upset. I'm just irritable. Come on. And he goes, get over it. And he's like, did you realize that you steam my vegetables with an SOS pad? I'm like, I'm so sorry. No, I wasn't purposeful. You know what? He stayed married to me. That was over 20 years ago that I did the SOS. He hasn't forgotten, and he does check the steamed vegetables. But he stayed with me. He's, you know, because he's covenanted. He made that covenant before God, and he stays with me whether I'm grumpy or whether I'm nice. Because it's a covenant. You know, God stays with you whether you're making mistakes or whether you're getting it right. Because he made this covenant with you. This covenant through Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that he's made with you. The, and, it's, and it's sealed with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. He will not go back on that covenant. Again, because it's sealed with the precious blood of his own son. He's going to remain faithful to you, Kassad. And that's what Jehoshaphat learned, that God had covenanted with him, with Judah, with those who sought him. And because Jehoshaphat didn't seek the gods of the other nations, but only sought God, God would keep his covenant. He learned that when he was rebuked or corrected, He shouldn't harden his heart like Asa's father did, but he should press harder into God. When the prophet Jehu rebuked him and said, should you 
love the wicked and help those who hate the Lord? Instead of saying, how dare you correct me? I'm the king. I don't get things wrong. We're told that he then went into all of the regions of Judah, taking them the law and bringing them back to the Lord, their God. It didn't turn them from God. It made them press in harder to God. When we get it wrong, it's not the time to go, well, I just can't do this. It's the time to press harder into the Lord. He learned to rely on God and not earthly alliances or armies for victory. He learned that a king is not saved by the strength or the multitude of his army, but by God. And then he learned to pray, to really pray. My mistakes, my folly, it teaches me to pray. These lessons would prove invaluable and essential in the ultimate conflict of his life. You see, you need every lesson that you're learning from your mistakes for the ultimate conflict in life. After godly reforms in Judah, Jehoshaphat receives news that the Moabites have joined forces with the Ammonites and the people of Mount Seir. This is an aggressive alliance. This is an alliance that has been formed to take Jerusalem and Judah out and down to destroy them. And they've aligned these enemies. And it's a vast multitude. It's an aggressive multitude. It's an alliance. And it's very close by. It is less than a day's journey from Jerusalem And Jehoshaphat, at this point, he begins to fall back on those lessons that he has learned. He gathers all of Judah together in the courtyard of the temple. And he begins to seek the Lord. And he prays. And oh, what a prayer he prays. And you see that he has learned to pray. We don't have a record of him praying any other prayer but help. But now his prayer has gotten bigger. And the first thing he does is he remembers the power and the sovereignty of God. Oh, Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one can withstand you? Next, he calls upon God's proven character because again, he's the covenant keeping God. You're the God that drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel. You're the God that gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. You gave us this land and we are only here because you gave it to us. And if you hadn't given it to us, we wouldn't live here. We would live in England, but you gave us this land. We learn that he's a promising God, a God who keeps his promises, his word. Because God had said, if disaster comes upon you or sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, then if you look to the temple, if you seek me and pray and cry out in your affliction, God had promised to hear and to save. And then what does he do after, after calling on the power and the proven character and the promises of God, he presents the problem. You know, sometimes in our prayers, we present the problem first, don't we? 
But it's so important that we, again, go into thanksgiving, as it tells us in Philippians chapter 4, that we are not to be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present our problems to God. And that's when that peace happens. So he presents the problem. Now, here are the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. In other words, Lord, we have not provoked. We have not touched them. We have kept the covenant that you gave us. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. This is how they're returning our good. They're returning it with evil. And then the request, oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Jehoshaphat's prayer shows another lesson that he is looking to God alone. Again, reliance fully on God. No alliance or reliance on another nation. No reliance on military might. No reliance on a schemer strategy. I love that. We don't even know what to do. You know, because we as women, the first thing we do when a problem happens, we start scheming, don't we? And then we get, pro- we get solution A, B, C, or D. Take your pick. Which one sounds best to you? And we tell our friends the problem, and then we tell them all the different solutions we've come up with. You pick. Which one do you think is best? What do you think I ought to do? We never say, what do you think I ought to do? And leave it open-ended. We always like, what do you think I ought to do? Here's solution A. And then they'll go, okay, go with that. Oh, but if I went with solution A, there might be a problem with, you know, and so we've got all these schemes. And Jehoshaphat says, we don't even have a plan. We literally don't have an idea of what we should do in this situation. Then this Levite stands up. In, in the middle of everything, he's a singer. He's part of the choir. He's a descendant of Asaph. His name is Jehaziel. And he speaks out and says, listen, all of you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat suddenly recognizes the voice of God. I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty heavy. We've got a multitude against us. They're aggressive. They want to destroy us. They want to kick us out of this land. They're just less than a day's journey away. And here's this singer who stands up, who nobody really knows. And he says, you don't have to fight. Don't be afraid. I don't know about you, but sometimes when someone tells me not to be afraid, has the opposite, the absolute opposite something to me. I have the opposite reaction to that word. You know, sometimes like Brian says, don't be afraid, Cheryl. And then I think, oh, great. Now I have to be afraid for both of us (sighs) because he's not really concerned about this and taking this seriously. So this Levite, this singer is standing up. Years ago, when I was at um, college at UCI, I was stopped by this guy, and he shows up at my college one day. And he's, he's a big guy, and he grabs me by the arm, and he's like, you're supposed to be my wife. And he starts yelling these crazy things. And I'm just like, great. You know, I've witnessed to these people, and now they're like, she must go to a loony church. 
that, you know, that's my thought. Oh, Lord, I'm going to bring disrepute to the church, to Calvary, to, to my dad, to you, because of him grabbing my arm and pulling me off like that. That was really the thoughts that were in my, my head. And a friend of mine who, from my work, which was um, at a shoe store, he looks at me and he's like, what can I do to help? And I look at him and my friend's like six feet tall and weighs 135 pounds. I'm like, get campus security. Because I knew as much as he wanted to help me, he couldn't do anything. This guy was huge and he's pulling me away. And he did get campus campus crusade for Christ. Yeah, that would have been really good. He did get the campus police and, and this man went running off. It's a story for another time. But the thing is, is, you know, Jehoshaphat recognized the sound of God's word. This is God. This is God. And the prophet continues with instruction. Tomorrow, go down against them. Again, he's recognizing the word of the Lord. Dig ditches. This time, here's the instruction. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Not that they deserve this victory, but God is going to give them this victory. When Jehoshaphat hears this word, because he recognizes it as the word of the Lord, he bows and begins to worship. And the next morning, he speaks to the inhabitants of Judah. And this is what he says to them. Again, believe God's word and believe God's prophets. Believe God's word, you'll be established. That means you won't be moved. You won't be thrown out. Believe God's prophets and you will prosper. God's not just promising that you won't be moved. He is saying you'll be enriched. You'll be rewarded. And Jehoshaphat does it God's way. According to what the prophet said, this is how Jehoshaphat sets up the battle plan. He appoints singers and those to praise the beauty of God's holiness, who God is, his righteousness, his fidelity, the veracity of his word. And he has the singers go before the soldiers. Why? Because God said they didn't have to fight. And Jehoshaphat believes that word because he is a covenant-keeping God. And that's exactly the song that they go in. The song that they go into battle is not your typical battle song. They don't go into battle going, we will, we will rock you. They don't even go into singing, mine eyes have seen the glory of coming of the Lord. I can't go that high. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth goes marching on. Now that's powerful stuff. In fact, you almost get empowered by the words. That's not, that's not God's song to go into battle. And it's not even onward Christian soldiers. That's not it. That's not the battle song. That's not the song that God gives us for the battle. The song that God gives us for the battle is a song of his covenant to us. It's the song to remind us that we are kept, 
that we will have victory because we are in a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. That's the battle song. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, praise be to God who always leads us in triumph through Jesus Christ. That's the song. We are in a covenant with God through Jesus Christ and victory is assured. Not because of our goodness, not because we have powerful words, not because we've been so good, but because he is so good, because he is so good. So the battle song is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's always good. His will is always good. Praise the Lord for his cassette will not fail. For his cassette endures forever. For there is no breaking his cassette. His covenant with us is unbreakable. As Paul would say, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from cassette. Nothing, no force, not even death can separate us. And this is the song to go into the battle with. And when Jehoshaphat applies these vital lessons that he's learned, you see, because chapter 20 is the application of everything that he's learned from his folly. You know, it kind of makes it all all right, doesn't it? Because now as he applies these essential truths that God has given him, we're told that God sets up ambushes against the enemy. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the people of Mount Seir turn on each other. And just as God says, they did not have to fight. They come to the encampment of the enemy, and not one person of the enemy is left alive. And they are three days to collecting the spoil and being enriched by the enemy what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. As they believed the prophets, they prospered. They prospered. They were enriched. In fact, they were enriched in such a way they renamed the battlefield. They renamed the battlefield. Instead of being battlefield, instead of being, you know, the place of threat or fear, they renamed it Baraka, which means blessing. What Satan meant for evil, God turned into a blessing. God turned the battlefield into a blessing. Then they returned to Jerusalem and they celebrated with joy. What was meant for destruction turned to celebration. And they rejoiced over what God did. And they even had instruments And then we're told that God returned the respect. Their reputation had been taken away through his folly. The the nations no longer feared. They had attacked. They had aligned themselves. But through this, we're told that once again, the fear of God came upon the surrounding nations and they did not attack Jehoshaphat and peace ensued. So what's the vital lesson? What's the overarching lesson from the story of Jehoshaphat? It's that God is not finished with you. You've only been in training, and in training you make mistakes. But your mistakes and follies have not disqualified you if you learn the vital lessons that Jehoshaphat learned. 
If you learn to seek God about everything, if you learn to listen to the check in your spirit and yield to conviction, to believe God's prophets, the promises and the warnings of his word, to take heed to God's word, to believe God's word, to obey God's word, doing it God's way, to recognize God's word. If you learn that God disciplines and chastens those he loves, and when you're caught and you're disciplined, it's because you're so loved, because you're so in his will. To learn that he's a covenant-keeping God and his mercy endures forever. If you let your mistakes press you harder into Jesus and you'll learn to pray in these times of hardship, it makes everything worth it. God wants to do extraordinary things in all of our lives and bring us greater victories and to give us the spoil of the enemy. He will let us fall. He will let us fail. So we will learn the essential lessons he has for us. And when we apply these exceedingly essential lessons, God is able to work and bring about extreme glory. Be a ready learner like Jehoshaphat. When you make a mistake, instead of turning like Asa and getting mad and becoming oppressive, say, Lord, what is it you want to teach me from this mistake? Is it to not throw black scarves in with light-colored sweaters? It's greater than that, isn't it? He wants to teach us those essential lessons that we all need for the battles of life. These are victory-giving lessons, and they are so essential that God doesn't care how much it costs you to learn these lessons. He doesn't care if it costs you your reputation, if it costs you money, if it if it costs you your pride, even better. These are essential lessons for victory. And we need to be ready learners that we might receive the greatest victory. Let's pray. In fact, stand up. Let's pray. Lord, here we are. We're all going through different battles. Lord, you know the battle of every woman in this room. Lord, you know the lies of the enemy that he whispers, that he rages, that we're disqualified or that you're through with us or that you don't want to give us a victory or that your will is not for victory. Oh God, in Jesus' name, we bind every lie of the enemy. Lord, in Jesus' name, we call out to our covenant-keeping God. In Jesus' name, we stand in the covenant. In Jesus' name, we who are so imperfect are kept, are taught, are chastened, are trained. And we are given the victory through Jesus. We thank you, oh Lord. Let us say no to condemnation and yes, yes to every word that you want to teach us. We thank you for teaching us and training us and loving so much and not giving up on us and giving us the victory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.